1: Hello, and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's Food and Drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Nora Pendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by Alexandra Collier. Alexandra is a Melbourne writer who has written for theatre, screen, and print. She is a McDowell Fellow, a winner of the R.E. Ross Trust Playwrights Award, and a finalist for the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize. Her memoir, Inconceivable, Heartbreak, Bad Dates, and Finding Solo Motherhood, about her journey to becoming a solo mum by choice, is out now. Ali, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you so much for having me. Ali,
2: as listeners know, we always start this podcast in the same place. What are your earliest memories of food?
0: It's interesting because I think this is quite a contested subject in my family, like many things, like around the dining table are always contested, but I was telling my mum the other day that my earliest memory of food was that we used to have pasta with cheddar cheese and ketchup on it as children. And we loved it. We absolutely loved it. And she looked so appalled when I mentioned this. <laughs> she would never serve it now. But at the time, I'm sure we just devoured that kind of food. So that was our kind of lowbrow food that I guess we liked as kids. And now that I have my own child, I sort of understand because he's obsessed with tomato sauce or ketchup. And we also, in the, in the sort of more highbrow realm, my dad would take us to sort of a local deli every Saturday morning and we'd get like a bunch of mezze type foods like pickled octopus and sun-dried tomatoes and dolmates, which are the rice wrapped in vine leaves and dips like terra masalata and that sort of stuff. There's a big sort of Mediterranean influence in Melbourne and my grandfather was Greek and he was a fishmonger. So I think um, that... Perhaps influenced the way that we ate as well. And that was always on Saturday lunch. And I remember that being really delicious. I think there were also a lot of sun-dried tomatoes, which were quite big in the uh, 80s and 90s, but seemed to remote all that now.
1: What were mealtimes themselves like? We used to sat around as a family together. Yeah, we always had dinner together. There's a
0: thing in my family, which is that meals were always very hurried. My dad was a surgeon and he was on call. So there, there was a sense of kind of like eating your food as quickly as possible, which unfortunately has plagued me throughout my life. It's very hard to deprogram yourself from being a fast eater. I found, and it's something I deeply regret and still have managed not to get on top of as an adult. But you know, I'm working on it. But um, yeah, so there, we always sat together. You know, as I ended up in theatre and a playwright and an actor originally, I would often be entertaining the family at the dinner table. So I think. It was a place to kind of perform and tell stories for me, which was probably inevitably led to me becoming a writer. And did
2: that interest, I mean, were there sort of fictional meals from books or plays that you were reading when you were younger that particularly intrigued you?
0: That is a great question. I don't remember there being specific fictional meals, but I do think that food and restaurants, and writing are kind of intertwined for me because the first play that I ever wrote was set in a restaurant and it was called Still Waiting. And it was very much based on my experience. I started waiting tables probably at about 18. Uh, before that, I had a brief stint at McDonald's, like every you know teenager does, sort of works at like the supermarket or the local McDonald's. And then I went and worked at the slightly upscale restaurant a few doors down from McDonald's. And I realized quite quickly that Restaurants were these very theatrical places. There was a sort of front stage area and then, the you know, the back of house area where the restaurant workers make the food and do all the kind of grimy stuff that they do backstage. And there was something so performative about that. So I really loved that and I turned it into a play. And the play was about a waitress who was kind of living this groundhog day and she's trying to leave the restaurant, but she keeps living the same day over and over again. And I think the great thing about that sort of backstage world—it's this sort of thing that, like Anthony Bourdain, obviously revealed in his Kitchen Confidential. It's why we watch, love watching shows like The Bear. It's because you see, like, the kind of sexual misconduct, you know, the, the like aggression, the law breaking, the pe- eating of leftover fries, all that sort of stuff that really goes on in the back of a restaurant.
1: And we often ask our guests about school food. What was Australian? school food like I, I imagine it was nice nicer British school food but I based that on literally nothing
0: ah. in Australia we don't have cafeterias or you know food served on a tray like I imagine they do you know at like you see in every American film there wasn't that kind of standard bog standard horrible food that was storage that was served up to you basically you bring your own lunch and it was usually like lunch in a paper bag that you would bring to school for me <laughs> I ate a lot of sandwiches with salami in them. I think my mum's specialty at the time was salami and butter. That was It was like this sort of ongoing salami sandwich thing that seemed to stretch on for years. My brother reminded me that we also used to have strass and tomato sauce on top in sandwiches, which just like to this day I still have problems with eating salami and strass, so I can't seem to eat either of those things, unfortunately. There was like a tuck shop, so... You could buy food and you'd get things like, you know, fried dim sims and you'd always somehow manage to spill soy sauce on your school uniform. It was just inevitable. And so there were some sort of quirky things that you could buy and like you'd put your coins in the paper bag, write on the on the paper bag what you wanted to order from the tuck shop for lunch and then like send it off at recess and the lunch would come back at lunchtime and you'd have like a sausage roll or something like that. And then they got a bit more upscale the older I got. I remember these amazing chocolate muffins that they put in the microwave and they were just incredible. But, yeah, generally it was pretty standard food. And I think, like, the lunch food now I think is pretty healthy at Australian schools. And Ali, what about
2: university? Was that a period where you tried to cook or learnt to cook or were you sort of relying on kind of
0: classic student staples? I think I learned to cook mainly from living in a share house and I had a housemate who was an amazing cook and she taught me things like how to steam mussels and she would you know buy a kilo of mussels and then she would scrub the little beards off them and all that sort of stuff and she was really into cooking and food and it was a real gift to live with her and to learn that sort of stuff from her so we shared that. I wouldn't say that uh, yeah, it's interesting because often I think cooking sort of skips a generation. Often you have like an amazing grandmother and then the grandchild is great cook, but somehow it like skips in between. And I feel like I maybe I did learn stuff from my mom when I was growing up, but I, I don't feel like I learned that much. But my grandmother was a great cook. She made these like beautiful, elegant stews and stuff, which no one's ever been able to replicate to this day. But yeah, I did probably eat terribly and drink a lot of beer and Stuff when I was a 20 year old and just had no realization that it was because I was so young that I could do that.
1: Were you able to eat out whilst you're at university or was that sort of precluded by being an impoverished student?
0: I feel like my downfall in life has always been that I spend my money in restaurants. And, you know, I would have like an amazing savings account now if I didn't eat out as much as I did. I'm not saying I went to like fancy five-star restaurants or anything like that, but I think I've always loved food and eating out. And the thing about the Melbourne food scene is that it's incredible. There's such great food here. It's such a melting pot of cultures, you know, even growing up, I remember we would get takeout once a week and it would be from, you know, a Malaysian place or we'd get fur from the Vietnamese place, or they, you know, had a Japanese restaurant down the street, or there'd be this, you know, um, thin crust sort of wood-fired pizza that became a huge craze. So there's just such great food and at the time it wasn't massively overpriced. It is now. Melbourne is a very expensive city to live in and to go out and eat in now. But I think it was slightly more affordable then and where I went to university was in this sort of Italian district and so there were all these very like kind of standard but decent Italian restaurants where you could get like a, a good pizza or a good pasta that sort of thing so I ate a lot of that.
2: And Ali after university you worked for the travel guide Lonely Planet where did that take you and and what new cuisines did you try?
0: I worked in the Lonely Planet offices in Melbourne which is far less glamorous than it sounds working at Lonely Planet so I wasn't tripping around the globe you know writing up about food but I did move to New York in my late 20s and I did manage to pitch them a few articles from there so I I remember I wrote about New York versus Chicago pizza. I guess New York obviously has the thin crust pizza and Chicago does the sort of deep dish style pizza. So there were certain, yeah, angles that I used to get
1: some freelance work. I think once I left and moved overseas. Tell us about that move to New York. What brought about and how does it feel to move there as a young, a young professional?
0: I think you kind of have to have a delusional sort of naive optimism to move to a city like New York. It's probably the same with London, you know, it's best to go there with a sort of like wide eyed sense that anything is possible and that you're going to make it, you know, it's like you're in the movie of your own life where you're just going to like walk around a street corner and bump into the love of your life and you're going to get the job that you want and all that sort of stuff. I think it's good actually to be sort of slightly naive, otherwise we'd never go. So I moved to New York to work in theater and as a playwright and, um, it was, you know, something that I did thinking it was only going to be for a year or so. And then it sort of rolled on because I think New York is the kind of place where you have to be very ambitious. If you don't have any ambitions in New York, you're kind of like flotsam on the tide. You just sort of float away. And so I was very driven. I wanted to get my work produced as a playwright. I wanted to write plays. I ended up studying theatre there. And you kind of get caught up in this sort of cycle of ambition you like you get one thing like a fellowship an award and then you think no no I have to get the next thing The bar kind of just keeps raising a little bit higher and a little bit higher and so there's really never a level that you can reach where you feel like you've made it so I think I kind of got caught in that hamster wheel in New York a bit of ambition and then of course you know I met an American guy and we moved in together and um, by then I was sort of had a career there like was having plays produced off Broadway and had sort of established a life there and become a New Yorker, really. I was there for about a decade. But unfortunately, that was interrupted when I woke up to this, you know, sudden longing to have a baby, which was not something that my boyfriend had shared, which is really the inciting incident of my memoir, Inconceivable, and it catapulted me out of New York and back to Melbourne.
2: And tell us a bit more about that. I mean, when was the moment when you realised that you you wanted to go alone? And I mean, that's obviously quite a big
0: big decision. Take us through that. Sure. I think in a lot of ways, it was an accumulation of a lot of small moments of terrible dates, but also, you know, I came back to Melbourne and I was in my late thirties by this point, And I was sort of staring down the barrel of that, you know, like 40, which is like this sort of flashing neon sign for women's fertility. That's kind of touted all the time in, well, 35 really is when you start getting those clickbait articles that are like, you're anxious suiciding now, like get pregnant. So I moved back to Melbourne and I sort of boarded the online sort of roller coaster of dating and whilst also sort of simultaneously exploring whether I, I could become a solo mum via donor sperm. And eventually I realized sort of after, you know, a few sort of relationships, that weren't, you know, sort of long-term, but a few months here and there, that while my reproductive timeline was winnowing down, was narrowing, I could meet someone whenever I wanted, but I couldn't have a baby whenever I wanted. So it became very clear to me that I had to make a decision. Otherwise the choice was going to be taken out of my hands and I was going to be potentially faced with
1: fertility problems, which I'd watched other friends of mine go through. When you moved back to Melbourne what was the plan you moved with your parents didn't you I did it yes yes how was that first of all
0: it was in some ways it was great because I was licking my wounds I was heartbroken you know I was sort of trying to find my place again in the world in other ways it was completely evangelizing to live with your parents at 37 is not you, I did feel like a loser you <laughs> know, <laughs> and it's impossible sort of not to feel like a loser to some degree moving back with your parents in your late 30s. And I think there's a sort of learned helplessness that happens. You know, the longer you stay with your parents, the less capable you feel of doing anything independently. You suddenly start to question your own ability to be autonomous and to achieve things with your life. So they were very generous in letting me stay. And I was pretty broke because I'd been living as an artist in New York for all those years, spending my money on noodles at Mamafuku or whatever. So it was lovely of them to let me move back in but ultimately I you know had to get out
2: and Annie when you were preparing for the IVF and when you were pregnant did you approach your diet differently and, and did you have any cravings or any kind of funny food things during that period
0: well yeah initially I you know had a lot of nausea like a lot of people do you know they say it's morning sickness but really it's morning afternoon and evening sickness it just kind of goes all day and so I, I did crave things like I remember like trekking around to different supermarkets trying to find pickled herring which is a sort of very specific thing and you know it's the kind of thing you can get in New York quite easily but you know finding it here you have to kind of know which supermarkets sell it and I, I just really I couldn't eat much at the beginning other than you know like plain pasta, minestrone. I was very into lemons for some reason and I remember reading something during my pregnancy and this could be completely unscientific so take it with a grain of salt but that what you're eating during pregnancy like your child then has those kind of flavor profiles that they like when they're born and the other day my son was actually like sucking on a wedge of lemon and I was trying to explaining to him well that's because I was eating lemons when I was pregnant with you so
1: I guess it's not the worst thing and has having a child changed the way you cook or or eat?
0: Yes, as anyone who has small children will know, there's an inverse relationship between the amount of time you spend thinking about or preparing and cooking a meal and the likelihood of them eating it. So it's very unsatisfying being a parent and trying to cook meals that are, you know, like delicious, exquisite you know, thoughtful, healthy meals, and then just have your son, who's my son's four, he just says to me, I don't like it. He takes one look at it and just says, I don't like it. Um, And I haven't managed to kind of get the sophisticated idea across to him that, like, you have to taste the thing before you can... (laughs) how can you know yeah exactly how can you know before you ban it from the table it's maddening oh so maddening but then on the other hand when they do eat something that you've made there's something incredibly satisfying about that you know when you watch them eat a meal that you've you know made for them and they're like eating it enjoying it like the other day I made this it's like very simple it's so easy it's this Hedy McKinnon who she's an Australian cook she's based in Brooklyn she has this like egg drop noodle and corn soup and it's it takes like 10 minutes it's so quick it's so easy to make but it's delicious you know you can add chives to it at the end and sesame oil and stuff but I don't do any of that for him because he would not like it and he just like was slurping it down and I was like oh god I could see why people would become like so Martha Stewart obsessed with being like perfect domestic goddesses in the home and feeding their child these meals because when they do eat them there's something like so satisfying about being able to satiate your child's appetite and watch them grow—I think it's sort of like this weird extension from breastfeeding or something. You like, if you breastfeed, you like you—you you have this kind of like perverse satisfaction in like I'm making this person grow—and then you like stand it on giving them food and nourishment. Yeah, yeah, it feels like you've cracked it. Well, you know, I say that, the most of the time he's incredibly fussy. We have the most boring meals of all time. You know, it's like meatballs, sausages. Broccoli is like one vegetable he'll eat, he'll eat cucumber. It's like, no, it's so basic, most of what we eat. Like the other day I bought these amazing red peppers from the farmer's market across the street at our house and I brought them home and I put them on the broiler. Like I, you know, I put them straight on the flavour, did that thing where you like peel them off and then roasted them and then pureed them and put them in this pasta sauce and he just said, I don't like it. And I was like, you love capsicum in its raw form. Like, I try to explain. So, you know, like, hey, it's often very frustrating. I'm really looking forward to him having a more sophisticated palette at some
2: point <laughs> and Ali tell us I mean I'm sure Liv and I we've both got children you must be a kind of superwoman doing it on your own how do you juggle everything particularly in, in the context of trying to fit all this delicious cooking and how I mean how, how do you handle the outside of
1: things
0: yeah I don't want to glorify my own cooking a lot of time it's very basic when it comes to my son because it just makes sense it's easier to do that the journal is I think A lot of it is having a community of people around you, obviously. Like the term solid parenting is almost a misnomer because you can't really parent on your own. So, for instance, my dad picks up my son one night a week from kindergarten and they take him home, my parents, to their house and they feed him and bathe him. And I have a babysitter do that one night, because you know, I'm working. And so I kind of am always counting in my head, like how many meals do I actually have to make in this week? And as many as I can do, like if I do a soup or something that's like, if it could last for more than one meal, that's amazing. The other thing is I've just discovered, you know, as a parent, that if anyone ever says to me, like, I will come over and cook you dinner. And if they come and they bring food and they prepare food for me, it's like the most, you know, life-changing gift. Basically any man could say to me, I will come and cook you dinner five nights a week. I'll probably just marry them, you know, like I just... It's like the lowest bar possible, but like preparing food, like outsourcing it to someone else is just so tantalizing often when you're parenting a small child. I'm hoping it'll become less like that because I do enjoy cooking, but it's, you know, cooking for oneself and a small picky person, not as much
1: fun as it used to be. And do you ever have the opportunity to cook just for you? Or are, you are you always eating with your son?
0: Well, often I make my own meal because it's how many times can you eat meatballs a week? You know, it's really not that satisfying. So the other night I, in an effort to spend less time on my phone, because I'm doing this sort of like how to break up with your phone challenge. I was like, I'm going to cook something. And I, we've got this amazing community garden at the back of my house. It's sort of at the end of this path. And there's so there's herbs and stuff in there, so you can go and pick some herbs and breathe it back in. So I was like, I've got, an eggplant, and I've got some lentils. Like I made this otolenghi stew, which I've been in all week, which is delicious, and he just won't even look at it. So often I find myself trying to make something else myself because otherwise my meals would be incredibly boring. And Annie, what is comfort food for you? I think for me, you know, the most – if there's nothing in the cupboard or nothing in the fridge – I will just make, you know, very plain pasta with some butter and parmesan grated on it and, you know, salt and pepper. Like that is so comforting and sort of nourishing and it fills you up even if it's got no vegetable
1: content really. And do you have a sweet tooth?
0: I do. I really do have a sweet tooth. But <laughs> something I'd feel like I'm not as bad as I was, like I, do, I you would know, eat just the entire bag of lollies or something when I was, you know, Younger and now, that doesn't give me as much pleasure and satisfaction as it once did. But, yes, I definitely have a sweet tooth and I crave sugar, probably every day really. Annie, to finish, we always ask our guests the same question, which is what what would be
2: your desert island meal? What's your ultimate meal?
0: This is a great question. I feel like if this was a sort of last meal, like desert island meal, like I would have to have something really rich and because there's sort of no regrets if you feel terrible afterwards. And I was thinking like the first thing I would eat was probably this like beef tartare they served at this restaurant in New York called from Blue Ribbon and they would serve it with potato crisps and that was just like, you know, destroyed because it was so heavy but delicious. And then I'd probably have a dozen freshly shucked Tasmanian oysters and then some kind of pasta, like probably like a linguine with um, what we call Morton Bay bugs, which are prawns basically. And that for dessert, I would have like a salted crack caramel ice cream from this place called Anpool Hills in Brooklyn, which is the most incredible ice cream you've ever tasted in your life. It's got pretzels and
1: caramel and salt and it's really is crack, as the name describes. That sounds completely delicious. And we have no way of getting that ice cream now. So it's an incredibly cruel cool way to end the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, i sorry. Ali, thank you so much for joining Table Talk. And Alexandra Collier's book, Inconceivable, is available now. Thank you.